Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, movers and shakers. It's time to light up your circuit boards and get your motors whirring. Get those electrons working for you in a positive way because it's time for your weekly update of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Cue the stadium crowd cheer effect. Thank you. For the folks who have been getting a little bit nervous about the rate of progress in AI recently, we've some developing news about protections that are coming into play, which will bring some cool relief, we hope. And for 3D printing fans, we've got a couple of stories of exciting developments in that area. And also some cool stories about the field of bionics, about prosthetic arms and super smelling and connecting brains to computers and stuff like that. But here to get this episode rolling. Without him, the show would be an unnecessarily long introduction and 45 minutes of hollow silence. It's the man with meaningful words. It's Matthew Dickerson. How's your week been, Matt? Well, really exciting this week. I've got some exciting news to tell you that I just want to give us a plug, basically. Yeah, right. (laughs) We often talk about the fact that what we talk about today, we will see develop in years, maybe even decades. Mm. We're really talking about the future. We try not to talk about too much about things that are happening right now. Sometimes we do if they're really important technology things, but it's really about looking to the future. And I want to give us a plug. Way back on the 10th of May, 2021, there was an episode or our episode, our weekly episode. You've got an excellent memory. (laughs) Well, I might have have looked up that one. (laughs) (laughs) On that particular episode, we talked about some issues with a bit of software called Horizon and it was used in the British Post Office or all throughout written in their post offices. And the software was faulty and it was wrongly oh, used got a to vague memory of this. Yeah, 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 it, was, yeah. it was wrongly used to accuse various postmasters and postmistresses. I'm not sure if that's the right term for a postmistress, but the, the postmaster equivalent of female, used to accuse them of basically taking money or mm. not handling the money responsibly. And not just an accusation, so people lost their jobs, people were asked to pay back money that they'd obviously stolen, people lost reputations, people ended up in jail. There were some people, because of the stress of all these accusations, that decided to take their own life. So fairly drastic repercussions. Now, we talked about that and talked about that in detail about how much trust. And I think at the time you might have talked about the fact that when you're teaching your kids, you say, sure, punch in a number on a calculator, but make sure there's a common sense check there as well. Does that number make sense? Sure, use all the technology you can, but you just still need to have that common sense check. And that's what they didn't do with the British Post Office. They didn't sit back at some stage and think, you know what, we've got a lot of people out there stealing money from us. We never realised how many people were stealing money from us. Mm. Well, it was wrong. And mm. now there's a new miniseries that's just been released called Mr. Bates versus the Post Office. It's a four-part miniseries available, uh, probably available in Australia now, but certainly it's already come out overseas. But it's all about this whole thing with Horizon Software and about all these people that ended up in jail. And there's a actually as a result of the miniseries in England now, there's more action happening with some of the people that have been involved getting some sort of compensation. Obviously, I think most of them are back out of jail now after they've been mm. finally found to not have been doing the wrong thing. Even the Prime Minister in Britain has tuned into all of this. So, yeah, but... Our listeners knew about it, James, almost, <laughs> That's right. almost three years ago. And you brought it to them. Yeah, exactly right. Well done, you. Now, that's enough dilly-dallying. Let's bog into today's episode. With the US election looming ominously in November this year, 
eyes from all over the world are focused on the bumpy road that is the campaign trail ahead. Regardless of which camp people hang their hat in, the whole concept of campaigning in America has changed dramatically in the past decade, and it's clear that facts run a poor second to the feels. There's nothing new about cold calling in campaigns and advertising. Anything can get a message out. Oh, sorry, that should be anything to get a message out. And AI can cold call like no one else. So in a bid to restore some integrity in 2024, the American Federal Communications Commission has declared that AI-generated robocalls are illegal now in the US. Matt, I'm not against this one bit, but how does, how does anyone police a law like this? Well, there are, it's a good question because I thought the same thing. I thought, gee, policing this is going to be tough. And even pointing the finger at who has done that. So yeah. the thing that triggered a lot of this, I think anyway, was recently in New Hampshire, there were robocalls being made by President Joe Biden. Yeah. He was ringing people and he was saying, Personally. don't vote, vote in the state presidential primary. So you're sitting there having dinner, chatting away to your partner and you get a phone call, okay, Oh, this is President Joe Biden. That's pretty cool. The president's rung me. I'm glad you took time out of running the, the country to just give me a call. Everything else you had to do. That's right. And then, that's the important message. Matthew, don't vote this election. Oh, okay. I'll, I won't do that then. The president told me not to. Now, it's worse than that, I think, because it wouldn't be that hard to create AI tools that you could not just hear a message, but actually have a conversation. Yeah. So the president's on the phone and, okay, thanks, Joe. Is it okay to call you Joe? Sure, that's okay, Matthew. I mean, you can have this whole conversation because yeah. AI is clever enough. Meanwhile, it sounds like the president's voice. So the Federal Communications Commission thought this probably isn't a good idea to have that sort of situation. So they've now declared, as you said, AI-generated robocalls illegal. One of the things that is interesting from that is, sure, you can use someone's voice you could use just a random voice you wouldn't have to use a famous person's voice but to have that conversation but if again how do you prove that was an ai call no no yeah. that was billy billy's got a job and he just has that conversation with people goes back and forth but proving it was generated by ai yeah. now they put some pretty severe penalties in place to try and stop this twenty three thousand dollars a fine per call if you are caught doing it and if you're a victim, and they're using the word victim, if you receive one of these calls, you can claim compensation from the company up to $1,500. But again, proving that. We got this call. They said it was Joe Biden. Right. Well, we better go and sue Joe Biden or find Joe Biden. Well, yeah. obviously it wasn't really Joe Biden. So now, how do you find out where that call was made and who authorised that to be made? So that's the tricky part. But I what, if, what if Joe Biden were to get AI to do a dodgy call on behalf of Donald Trump and do a double switcher over there, and I'm thinking, oh, this is just a hornet. This is That's kicking right. your honestness. This is. That's right. So you could have Joe Biden actually do a call mimicking Joe Biden's voice, and then he says, Obviously, that, that was, was the opposition. Yeah, that was oh, that's, going to, that's a double, double way. Go, go, go and sue Donald Trump for that because obviously. Is no bottom to this rabbit hole. No, that's right. At least the legislators, and we often talk about the fact they're catching up, at least they've said, okay. Here's the rule mm. now enforcing. Well, we'll think about that later. But yeah, for the okay. moment, at least the rule's in place. And unfortunately, a lot of rules that are in place are there for honest people. Mm -hmm. Dishonest people are happy to flaunt those rules. Well, it'll give someone a job to do to work out how they can do this accurately and, and get this enforced accurately. Well, that's right. But I think it's at least the signalling to say, yep. okay. It's not cool. It's not cool. It's not cool. It's definitely not cool. Even robocalls themselves are a bit frustrating. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you get those calls <laughs> and it's a very sincere recorded but, voice. But yeah, it's a, it's a recorded voice. 
my worry is when they want to have a conversation with you mm. and they can reply to you. Yeah, that's right, which would be possible right now. So oh, to step in the right direction. And nothing has happened along these lines yet in Australia. So mm. it's not illegal yet in Australia to do this. I must admit, though, that, Americans do... That's a fairly strong caveat yet. Well, yeah. Exactly right. But Americans do tend to spend a lot of money on their election. So it probably yeah. makes sense that they're focused on that. I don't yeah. think we spend quite as much money. And it's not the presidential-style election, obviously, here. Mm. Further on the subject of AI-generated fraud, the concept of the deepfake was barely even a twinkle in a hacker's eye a couple of years ago. But today, kids can create a compromising deepfake of their least favourite human and have it bouncing around all seven continents before little lunch. It's hard to pick a deepfake from reality, but Google thinks it might have an answer, Matt. Mm, It's interesting. There is something which I didn't know existed called a Coalition for Content Provenance and Authenticity or more commonly known as C2PA. Sounds like something out of a Star Wars film, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah. So that coalition is trying to create some way of authenticating images and videos as well. Now, you've got companies like Adobe and Microsoft and Intel, even the BBC are involved in that particular coalition. Mm. And Google says, yes, I want to be part of this as well. I want to have something that I call a content credential on an image, and they're starting on images first, but it will Mm. be applicable to videos as well. And the idea here is that having that content credential means that I can click on that, I can look at the content credential, and I can see all sorts of information about this image, obviously trying to say, okay, is this authentic? Now, it's a bit like you talked about with the last story. That's fine. So if I create an AI image, what's to stop me from creating some fake content credentials and putting it on there? So they've, they've got ways they're working through exactly that problem. So I can either create some fake content credentials and put it on there and say that's fine. But if I've got some other third-party way of checking those credentials and checking the authenticity of that, then that would improve that. But mm. it's a constant chase-your-tail mm. scenario that yeah. I see. So you've got some of the, the big companies, and I think they're getting more responsible. I think the Googles and the Microsofts and the Adobes of the world realise just how important it is to have trust in our technology. Mm. So even though in the past, I suspect that some of those large companies uh, just said it's okay, things will work themselves out. We can do out. it, so let's just do it. Well, now I think they are saying that. I think in the past they didn't. I think they just yeah. said it'll just let it run and yeah. things will work themselves out. But I think they're now realising the incredible responsibility they have. Mm. And when you start seeing, uh, we talked about last week, that 38.8 million, I think it was, a Hong Kong company transferred yeah. to a fake person or a fake company because they had this deep fake video call. So when you start to see real hurt being caused to companies, and again with pictures, you said it a minute ago that you could get a school kid not happy with their marks, they got in a test, next thing you know there's a deep fake video of their school teacher Mm. doing all sorts of things with no clothes on. So that's a reality. So it can cause real hurt to people, it can cause real hurt to bank balances. So I think the big guys are saying, well, let's work out ways we can do it. There's a long way to go in this. How you get the content credentials on the image, that's easy. But how you stop people creating fake content credentials, that's the tough part. So you see, need to try and work out some way of doing it. But at least the hope that I see here is that we've got some of those big companies there that are saying, this is a problem, we need to work out how to solve this problem. And mm. so hopefully with enough of those smart people around, they'll certainly work out a way to do and, it. And also, you know, uh, this is another thing too, because as technology develops, 
Um, yeah, we're concerned that oh, we're removing people uh, from opportunities to, to to do jobs because the the technology takes the place of the job that was done by a human in the past. But there's new jobs that are being created now in trying to find a way, or new occupations, shall I say, in trying to find ways to manage this uh, new technology and and cope with the changes that come with it. Yeah. yeah, and even, say, for example, with Facebook advertising, at one stage there, there were ads that were running rampant, especially around elections. And mm. we mentioned it before that I think Donald Trump in the 2020 election spent $40 million on Facebook advertising alone. Mm. So it's a big industry. It's huge money that's being generated by these companies. And so at one stage there, it was a pretty much free-for-all. But even Facebook, who maybe ignored some of the rules for some time or ignored trying to create some standards there, even there at the point now that mm. anyone that wants to advertise for political purposes, there's a process they've got to go through and they've got to authenticate that person really exists and they've got to show ID. So there's some extra steps involved, mm. which means that it just makes it that bit harder for someone to just go rampant. And so you, you can trace back that advertising and say, okay, we know that ad was placed by this person and this person we know is real. So at least there's some sort of traceability back to some of those but gee it's a long way to go and the technology is screaming ahead that's right so we've got to try and catch up with creating quite a jungle well it is but self-regulation and then some of the, the legislation as well in the world of 3d printing it seems that we're only limited by our imaginations and the latest thing hot off the press it's a network of functioning arteries veins and capillaries Matt, I said hot off the press as a figure of speech, but these blood vessels are literally printed into ice, though. <laughs> it's, it's a fascinating way. I just love the creativity of humans. We're very close to getting to the point where we could 3D print a new organ. They, The scientists have been 3D printing tissues, and mm. they've been actually getting to the stage where it's not that far away. I'm going to say not that far away. I think we're going to have the first 3D printed organ in a human within two years. So it's that yeah, close, wow. I think. Now, don't take that as gospel that's my estimation of it but one of the issues they've had is trying to 3d print something with blood vessels inside that that's Mm. been a real challenge for them because you're you're printing a hollow if you understand what i mean you're you're printing somewhere that doesn't exist so you you have to have that and it doesn't collapse on itself the latest idea they've come up with here is a fascinating way to solve that problem someone sitting around the kitchen table one day got some ice out of the fridge and that ice melted in their drink and they went hold on ice it's solid but then it melts Mm. so they're at the point now where they're doing testing already where they're 3d printing a network of blood vessels so they'll take that but they do it all in ice and then you can actually build a structure around that Mm. and then the ice melts and you've got the hollow cavities where the blood needs to go so quite fascinating now the whole platform they use a 3d printer platform they use sits at negative 35 degrees celsius or minus 35 degrees celsius so obviously you want the ice to stay ice while you're doing the printing and that stays in that across the whole time frame it's being worked on there and then they don't use water they actually use deuterium, so heavy water if you like, so yeah, not yeah. just normal water. So they use deuterium. Apparently that gives you less residue when the ice melts at the end of it all. You've got less residue left in there, which is obviously what you want. And then they're at the point now where they're testing 3D printing organs around that. It sounds very complicated, but it sounds like a fairly simple solution to a very complicated problem. Now, again, 
not there yet. We're not about to start saying tomorrow I'm going to get a new heart and, and make it bigger like Farlap and then I'll be able to run my marathon in you know, under two hours. <laughs> but it's certainly one thing that when people get to that point, because it's, it's almost a bit sad that someone does get an organ transplant for some disease or some problem they've got, they know that someone died to get that. Mm. Now, unfortunately, we do have people die in car accidents regularly, so there is a supply of organs, but it'd be much nicer if they can say, oh, James, you need a new lung, kidney, heart, whatever. Just give us a few minutes. We'll just go and whack that through the printer and job done. Now, yeah, And I wonder what they can do with uh, the immunology of all this uh, and you know, because uh, one of the problems with um, creating tissues is tissue rejection. Mm. But if you could make a tissue out of your own cells, I'm just thinking way back in the day when uh, my sons were born, we actually harvested their stem cells, their umbilical stem cells. There you go. So for and just so waiting for something like this, I'm getting really excited by this story, mate. Yeah. So uh, you've actually got those stored somewhere. They're stored in uh, liquid nitrogen in Melbourne. Ha, yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, we're, we're waiting for technology to catch up to yeah. um, to do something with them. And um, hey, we might be able to just make bionic men out of these. <laughs> That's right. Why not? Get them signed up to the bionic <laughs> Olympics now. So that sounds like to me a really interesting way to solve this problem that is a complicated problem. So I just think we're getting closer all the time. I think it's awesome. It's fantastic. Construction in space has, up until now, always involved producing parts here on Earth first and then carrying them out into orbit and assembling them in apparent weightlessness. But of course, if space is to become the new frontier, we're going to have to learn how to make things in space from scratch, from the raw materials. And that is exactly what the clever folks at the European Space Agency are trialling now. 3D metal printing in space. Matt, most people currently use polymers in their 3D printing, but this is metal printing and in zero-G, no less. This is something special. It's not just any metal printing either. It's stainless steel. So you're yeah, not wow. mucking around with some little wussy metal. You're going, <laughs> you're going for the serious <laughs> going stuff. for the goods. <laughs> so we've gone from yeah. one extreme to the other. We're going from minus 35 printing in ice for it to melt, going to stainless steel. And you're right. You're on the space station. You've got a little part that fails. You can't just ring up the local store, the local electronic store or the local parts store and say, can you just stick one of these in a courier and get it out to me because I've got one that's broken. And some of the things that might break on the space station might be not that important, but other parts might be pretty important. It well, even, even building new additions to the space age, uh, station, you have to bring the part up. Now, yep. the part's probably got a lot of airspace or there's a packing inefficiency. But if you can pack everything into a block of stainless steel or powdered stainless steel, whatever, I don't know, I guess you're, you're using there, yep. um, that packs so much better and so much more neatly and then you can print it up there. That's Yeah, amazing. and I'm not sure how much they would do of that, but that's certainly down the track because I can imagine the amount of energy you need to make it happen mm. is quite significant. So how they actually do it is they have a box, a sealed box, to keep the heat within that box and to keep any sort of fumes in that box. And then they melt the stainless steel wire with a laser. So that's why I kind of think the amount of energy you need for mm. that. And then you basically 3D print, the same as a 3D printing technology does it, it basically builds it layer upon layer. What I've seen with it so far is small parts, so not so much build a whole new part that you might add on but again this is yeah, the okay. first it's first iteration of it now so yeah. why not get to that point at some point in the future but at the moment if you had a small part that 
broke, that you needed replacing, that wore out, whatever it might be, then you could actually say, let's print it. But you need a bit of time up your sleeve because a couple of things I learned about the space station. So the first part is it takes just to print something small, takes maybe two to four weeks to print. Yeah, okay. One of the reasons for that is they can only operate for four hours a day because they're are noise restrictions on the International Space Station. <laughs> I don't understand that. People go get sleep. Well, their neighbours. I'm thinking about their neighbours complaining, <laughs> neighbours <laughs> saying they're having another party on the ISS. <laughs> so I don't understand what the noise restrictions are, but you've, you've only got four hours a day that you can make noise on there apparently. Well, the other thing that really impressed me about this is the zero-G because I don't know how many people here on Earth have tried printing or mounting their 3D printer upside down and see how that goes printing. <laughs> I'm sure there'd be some degree of success, but everything that we do here on Earth is under the influence of gravity, yeah. and we sort of take it for granted. Yep. I wonder how this goes when there's no, well, the, the apparent weightless. That's right, and obviously... Oh, yeah, the, you're apparently weightless. The, the crystalline structure in the metal might be slightly different when you haven't got gravity influencing that. And the first thing they're doing is they're actually doing some test parts. They're... They've got the printer in the, the space station right now, got delivered at the beginning of February, and they're printing some parts there. And then the next time they have their courier come back down to Earth, they bring the, those parts back down to Earth and analysing those because they don't want to put them in mm. in the real space station and go, okay, it should be right. Oh, that zero gravity thing didn't go so well. <laughs> so they're going to analyse those, test those, do strength tests, all sorts of things on yeah, them. But yeah. you're right. And that's the thing. You can have all the theory in the world and you can say, well – it should do this, and the gravity or the microgravity there shouldn't have much of an impact, but until you actually do it and test it, you don't really know yeah. for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, but it does sound quite interesting, doesn't it? But again, when they're bored sometime, let's go and print out a new Lego figure in stainless steel maybe. Who knows? Because <laughs> <laughs> those people, they often, when they're bored and they want to do something on a weekend, they go and use their 3D printer to make stuff. So Exactly. I don't know yep. if those guys do that. Prosthetics are improving all the time, restoring better and better natural movement and capability to the patient with each new generation. A bionic hand is now able to reproduce the pressure grip or the power grip on demand without crushing eggs or without holding onto a hammer too loosely. But until now, they've been completely numb to sensations like hot and cold temperatures. Until now, Matt. Until now. And a part of it is the phantom sensation that people have. If ever you've talked to someone that's missing some part of their body, even a finger, but say an arm or a leg, mm. they'll often talk about the fact that their hand gets itchy. Phantom limbs. Yeah, yeah. phantom yeah. limbs, even though they don't have it there. And so researchers thought, well, if there is this sensation there, even though it's not there, can we take advantage of that? And they have actually taken advantage of that in a very clever way. So, for example, I've got my arm missing. I then get a prosthetic arm. Now, that prosthetic arm as you said, might have some ability to, to grip things, to move and do things. But typically in the past, it was an inanimate object. So I yeah. couldn't really work out if something was hot or cold or couldn't work out if something was made of glass or made of something that was a bit softer. Yeah. And what they're doing now is the first thing is putting temperature sensors. So there's some temperature sensors in the, the hand itself, for example. And that's great. You could on a technical level, detect the temperature. You can have a readout on the arm that says 72 degrees Celsius, whatever. But they're actually hooking up electrodes back onto the arm where your your arm exists and putting different electrodes in different spots for different triggers for different temperatures. So then you grab something, it's 
cold, you know, you grab a piece of ice, for example, it will send a sensation through or a trigger through to one of those sensors and your brain is elastic enough yeah. to realise that, okay, I've learned that's cold. And then another trigger might be that's hot. And so these yeah, neuroplasticity is an amazing it thing. Is, isn't it? And the brain rewires itself to um, understand how this new prosthetic's working. Yeah, and you got to the stage very quickly that you're getting 100% accuracy in hot and cold. Now, I'm sure you couldn't say, yep, that's exactly 38.7 degrees Celsius, but you got to the point where you could detect different temperatures. And again, that might be useful because if you're dealing with something, the prosthetic might be able to pick out that thing out of the oven, but then you grab it with the other hand and go, oh, whoops, that's actually a bit hot. So that was the first part they did. And then using this same concept where you could actually detect how hard, how much pressure was on something when you picked it up, the prosthetic was good enough to detect that, but then again, by having sensors come through to your arm, it could then trigger to say, this is hot, uh, sorry, this is hard like glass or this is soft like a, a sponge. They got at the stage with heat, they were getting 100% accuracy, hot and cold, using the prosthetic. When you got to glass, copper, plastic, etc., you got to about 66% accuracy. Right. And again, Still obviously, while the person there. was blindfolded. And you think about it, even if, if I was blindfolded and someone said, this is copper, this is, well, they didn't tell me, they said, guess what this is, glass or copper or various things along those lines. I don't know that I'd get it perfectly right either because yeah. some of those things, they might have a bit of a feel with temperature, but they're still hard. So glass and copper, they probably feel fairly similar. Yeah, it's Maybe all about the um, the specific heat capacity and how much it wants to draw that heat out of your fingers. Mm. Yeah, so but how does glass compare to copper? Well, see, I think Guess what I'm doing tomorrow. <laughs> Get the kids at school. Yeah, I'm going to see if we can... Blindfold. It's good. So they actually, that's a good one. They use glass, they use copper, and they use plastic as three things to, to identify. All similar hardness, but as you say, different heat capacity. And, and my first thought would be the copper would feel different because it would absorb the heat a bit differently to the glass, for example. But then yeah, plastic in there... so it's going to feel colder. It'll suck that heat faster, you think. Yeah. But uh, glass will do that very well. That's really interesting. It is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah let me know. Next week I want to hear the results <laughs> of, of your kids. Oh, there's pressure. Now I've got to go and do it. But you know, we've got to find objects that are the same shape and size and all that sort of stuff too. Yeah, yeah even something flat and just say to the kids, you can only put your hand straight down on that flat bit of glass, flat bit mm. of copper. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So that was actually quite fascinating because, again, if you had this ability with your prosthetic, it just would make your life a bit better. And the other one they worked out that they could work out with some of these electrodes was how wet something was. Because, again, what's the difference? Mm. If I touch something and it's wet or it's dry, I know that it's wet or it's dry, mm. but that's years of my body learning that. How do you have a sensor in there that picks up moisture? You could do that and then have different sensors come through onto the rest of your arm. Yeah. Amazing <laughs> Amazing here, isn't it? Here's something I bet you didn't know. Robots seem to have trouble with doors. Now, I knew Daleks couldn't do stairs, but this one came as a genuine surprise to me. But it's not only doors, folks. Apparently, drawers, cabinets and refrigerators are a challenge too. Perhaps Terminator Judgment Day is still a way off yet, Matt. It is interesting, isn't it? Just when keep putting a bunch of kitchen cabinets in front of them. <laughs> That's right. Dif and they're stuffed. Well, different doors and kitchen cabinets. <laughs> we should have them. I'm going to go and hide in the kitchen. So when we walk up to a door, we see a knob. And we know intuitively that I'm going to have to twist that knob. We see a handle, I know I'm going to have to pull down the handle. Hmm. I don't think we think about it that much, no. but we must do, do it. Well, we do that, but we must also do a quick analysis about where the hinges are. 
because mm. we know instinctively whether to pull or push on a door based on something, maybe yeah. the last person that went through there we saw or maybe the hinges. So there is that cartoon of the Midvale School for the Gifted, that classic Gary Larson far side cartoon. You've never seen this? I haven't seen that one, no. Yeah, Midvale School for the Gifted. It's got a big sign on the door and it's a push door. No, it's a pull door and he's pushing on it. Right. No, so that everyone's been caught out by that. They have. Sure. But anyway, intuitively, I think we, we know that. <laughs> and sliding doors are the other ones that are a bit of a challenge. So we see a different shaped handle on a sliding door. Again, intuitively, oh, that one slides. Same with our cupboards when we open up and go to our kitchen. That cupboard might swing, that cupboard might pull out. And fridges, you're right, because fridges sometimes, you. in fact, I know my fridge, the bottom drawer, the freezer part, is a drawer mm. and the top part is a door mm. but the handle looks very similar on both of those so there's all these challenges so for a robot it walks up and it goes oh well i've been told to pull or to push or to slide what's it been told what's the programming say what these particular so when it can't work it out it just gets its laser beams and blows <laughs> the thing up right? why not yeah, right. okay. and that's where the dalek reference comes <laughs> <Okay>. in <laughs> it exterminates the door so some researchers at carnegie mellon university have said well we're going to work on just a robot before we get to the stage where rosie from the jetsons can come and do all our housework which is where i'm aiming for rosie needs to know how to get around the house mm. and they figure that some people work on some other clever parts folding clothes putting up clothes back into the cupboard, that sort of thing. So these researchers have said, we're just going to teach robots how to get through doors. That's our job. That's our entire job. So they've actually <laughs> spent time where they've used some AI and they've set up these robots to go around the university randomly and just learn. Just doors. Well, no, learn, first of all, how to go through doors. And what I love about this is, it's just the same as kids, <laughs> they reward the robot for successful interactions. <laughs> I don't know how they reward the robot, mm -hmm. but they reward the <laughs> robot for successful interactions, which is encouraging it to then go and learn more. So the robot is literally going around. It watches a door, typically for about 30 minutes, watches people go in and out, and then it goes, I've got the hang of this one, and goes over, and it's getting that to about 95% accuracy yeah. when it goes and works out how to go through it. What it's got to do next is be able to analyse enough different components of a door that it can walk up to that door without seeing anyone else walk up to that door mm. and know how to open it. Mm. And that's the, the real challenge. Then we get past the doors, then we get to the kitchen cupboards and the kitchen drawers and all sorts of things. Because you think about kitchens, you think about how many different ways kitchens are set up and how many different types of drawers and they're sliding and they're swinging. Our dishwashers in our kitchen, as many are, are hidden away. They look like two normal drawers in a kitchen. Yeah. They've got the same front. They've got the same handles. So how do you know those ones as opposed to the ones that are just normal drawers you put knives and forks in? So what we're teaching them is how to find us when we're trying to hide <laughs> at the end of days. So the kitchen <laughs> won't be the safe place anymore after that. So once I think the idea here is once they've got this part nailed, then they can say to people working on other parts of the robotics, we've got the solution to the doors, come and use our algorithms and our learnings and then plug that yeah. into your robot. So anyway, at the moment, it just wanders around the university trying to go through just doors. Just watching people <laughs> in a really creepy fashion. Don't feel freaked out. out. <laughs> Kids looking for career paths can get some great ideas by listening to Tech Talk. We talk a lot about AI and robotics and 3D printing and material science and such, but the science behind nanoparticles is equally fascinating because of the broad horizon of possibilities that they open up and the amazing things that can be learned from them. Now, Matt, 
Why are scientists from Washington University injecting nanoparticles into the olfactories of locusts? <laughs> and I do apologise to anyone out there that's worried about animal cruelty. I'm not sure if locusts come under that category, but it does sound like we're taking full advantage of the natural components of a locust and then adding to it. So locusts have actually got very acute olfactory capabilities Anyway, so they can smell really good. Mm. And, and when I say smell really good, not that we smell them and go, mm, that smells nice. They've got <laughs> high, highly sensitive smell. They'll say you smell really nice. That's right. <laughs> or maybe not, but whichever way, it's an extreme one or the other. So that's the first part. They can detect specific chemicals very accurately. So great tick one for the locusts. Then scientists have injected some nanoparticles to enhance their smell identification. So certain smells, certain chemicals they're looking for, in this case, they're looking for the smells of bombs. So when you go through security at an airport, they get the little cloth and they swipe it over your hands and your belt and maybe part of your bag that you're carrying through Mm. trying to pick up particles. Well, smell is another way you can do that because if you've been playing with some bombs, handing some bombs, or you've got a bomb in your bag, then that can be picked up via smell. We just need to train these locusts to be able to point. Point, well, the way they train them to point is via their neural activity. So wow, okay. We, we take a locust, we inject some nanoparticles into its brain to say, now you're going to focus on these smells that we want, and then they put some electrodes on and monitor the neural activity. I'm not sure how much neural activity there is in the brain of a locust normally, <laughs> but apparently there's enough yeah. extra activity that when a certain smell is smelt, the neural activity of the brain does something, and the scientists say, yes, we've picked up that smell. So I just, I'm imagining these little locusts. So you, you've got explosives on your gear, and they come and say, sorry, sir, we know you've got explosives. They go, how do you know? It says, the locusts told me. That's right, this little thing here. And I'm just not sure whether these electrodes are in a wireless scenario, so they can just send the locusts out there and pick up activity, or they've got to be connected Cute to their machine. little helmets, uh, you know, with the wires attached. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> so like Imagining something out of the 50s. Oh, <laughs> that's exactly what I'm thinking of these. And again, you go through the airport now, forget a guy with a little wand that swipes your belt. No. They say, just... Release the locusts! <laughs> that's, that's it. We'll just let the locusts have a sniff around you. You stand there going, the things you get away with at an airport, you couldn't get away with normally. If someone said to you out in the street to do the things they tell you to do at an airport, yeah. you'd, you'd tell them to go way in a, in a harsh way but you can get away with all sorts of things so yeah. apparently at some stage in the future you'll be walking into the empire state building to go up the top or you'll be going through an airport and someone will say let the locust sniff you to see whether you're safe to go oh, ahead wow. but it, it is one of those examples where we look at what nature does and we look at what nature is very good at and we say let's take that rather than invent that again or create something that does that, mm. let's take advantage Mimic. of what nature gives us. Yeah, mm. so it's it's quite fascinating. But again, I come back to it so many times, who thought of this? Who <laughs> sat around and said, I reckon locusts, we should do this, this, this and this, and that'll give us a bomb detection unit. And then someone else said yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And someone was sitting around with their pet locust thinking, you've got something more to tell me. You've got something more to give. <laughs> How do you feel about brain-computer interfacing? Rendering keyboards and mouses, it's called mouses too, I believe, uh, redundant, and just tuning your melon directly into the laptop. Now, you may have heard already that Elon Musk has his first guinea pig and has announced that the first successful trial of the new Neuralink brain implant was awesome. Matt, I've enough trouble with weirdly accurate advertising on my phone now 
I feel like I don't need tech to be literally millimetres from my thoughts. <laughs> well, I'm actually not the biggest fan of the sitcom Two and a Half Men because I think it's yeah. probably a bit inappropriate, but I do remember seeing one episode. I went back and had another look at it then when, when I was talking about this story, or thinking about this story. So episode 12, season 11 of Two and a Half Men has got, uh, in, in that this is when Ashton has taken over from Charlie Sheen, and so Walden is the character there, and he's working on this device to read your thoughts mm. and everyone can see that it's going to be a bad idea and of course there's two people in there and they've got these headsets on and they're having their thoughts read and you can't there's a there's a reason that we have a filter that goes from what i'm thinking <laughs> right now yep. to what i say and in this particular series or this particular episode there's thoughts going on inside walden's head and they're being read out directly by the computer, and they're pretty embarrassing thoughts. So, <laughs> so, so it's kind of things, even his first word. So, word, so you go back to 1876 when Alexander Graham Bell first spoke on a telephone, and he said, Mr. Watson, come here, I want to see you. Not the most revolutionary words, but mm. still quite interesting. In this episode, Walden's first thought that came out from the computer was pudding. So again, <laughs> not the, the greatest words in terms of a breakthrough that you want to hear. And this is part of the reason that, Again, reading thoughts. I mean, there's lots of movies that make fun of it that people can finally work out what a woman is thinking. So they sit mm. there and, and put something on that reads women's thoughts and then they have all these crazy thoughts and then the men are just thinking nothing or all <laughs> sorts of things. So do we really want to read people's thoughts? I'm not convinced that we do. Mm. But with this particular concept that Elon Musk has been pushing is Neuralink is a brain implant. So the first human has had a Neuralink device implanted in them. We don't know who it is. They mm. don't tell us who it is, and maybe they don't because they want this person to walk around amongst us and be using their Neuralink. It could be your eye, James. Who mm. knows? So they got per a permission back in September last year to do human testing, so they've now got it. And what the Neuralink device does is it's basically, call it a brain-computer interface. It's a device that allows signals to be transmitted, and it's got very tiny fingers, thinner than a human hair, that are actually going into the brain to detect certain activity. Wow. I know, it sounds pretty scary. Uh, let me just say for the record here, it's not me, because I don't think I like <laughs> the idea of this, but, but it could be. So when they've got that, then again, I'm sure in the movies, this device would read the thoughts and go, oh, I'm thinking about going out and having lunch and buying some salmon in my lunch now, but I just don't think it's going to be that accurate. It's going to be more macro thoughts rather mm. than micro thoughts, yeah. if I can use yeah, that term. Yeah. That's not anything that Neuralink says. That's my concept there. So the macro thoughts might be incredibly helpful, for example, to do things like, I've got my legs that don't work because I had a car accident, but I want to move this wheelchair around. And so I'll just think about moving forward or think about moving back. And again, we talked about the brain's elasticity earlier. I'm sure you could mm. get to the stage where you could train your brain to think about those things and the wheelchair would respond. So that's where I think it'll be the most helpful in its early days, helping people that have got some sort of physical disadvantage. Oh, stroke patients and um, motor neurone disease. Mm. Yeah, all yeah. those things. Yeah. So that, that to me, as much as we might make fun about reading someone's thoughts and, and finding out how you can win a game of poker because you, you know it's in the other guy's hand, then this is where I think it'll be absolutely much more useful to try and have that interaction between the, the brain and physical devices. Could you get to the point where you had some prosthetic legs, bionic legs, if you like, and you thought about them moving and then they moved? Gee, it's, it's a long way from yeah, that yet. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but I think the physical wheelchair concept isn't that far away. But there is so much that goes on. When we, when we walk, 
there are so many things that are going on yeah. in terms of what we're thinking and triggering that down to our legs and actually getting us to the point well, of... The act of standing still requires <laughs> constant balancing uh, act uh, with the muscles in your legs. Yeah. And I've talked to people that have lost toes, and we don't think our toes do yeah, much. Yeah. Of course, they are important in our balance, but I've talked to people that have lost toes, and they've said there are times when they're standing there and they almost fall over because their toes aren't doing the physical yeah. work that their brain is telling them to do because they don't exist anymore. So you're right. There's so many things that we do that are just so complicated that mm. we take for granted. So the first part is, yes, moving those around. The second part might be some physical devices you have on there. And it may be absolutely of some use to the things that you've talked about, about diseases or motor neuron or things where you're not your, your brain is not communicating with your body effectively. Yeah. This might be an effective interface. But again, we're pretty quick. When we, when we think about something, when we're playing test cricket and someone's bowling a ball at 160 kilometres an hour, yeah. we're reacting quick enough to that. I just don't think we've got computers that could read that signal from the brain and then send that through to some part of our body that would then make that body part move as quick as we can. But if you had no movement, well, you'd accept some movement even if it was a bit slower. Well, we've got to throw that little caveat in again, yet. <laughs> yeah, so so we're all about the future here. Yeah. Um, we can't do it yet. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm really keen to see this first person that's got it in their brain. Yeah. And I imagine they haven't shown us anything yet, shown us the person because they're still doing that training where – Imagine this person would come into the office each day, into the research office, and they'd say, right, now sit down. Now think about this. Think about mm. moving forward in a wheelchair, for example. Think about turning left. Think about all sorts of different things. And then they would be trying to read what signals our brain was putting out when we're thinking about certain things. And mm. I mean, that's the real challenge, interpreting. It's like you're talking a different language. You've now got to have some way of interpreting that language. So it sounds incredibly scary. Yeah, it does. Fascinating. But if I was in a wheelchair right now and someone said, you've got the ability maybe to move around by thinking about it, I'd be saying, how quick can we develop this? Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I don't know where this is going to go. It's a, it's a fascinating one. It's a scary one. But it's almost inevitable, I think, which is a bit scary. <laughs> Well, machine learning is the very essence of artificial intelligence, to take experience, learn from it, and become better at problem solving than it was before. Well, as if AI didn't need a leg up at all on that count, in a curious development, one research team is testing it on the Microsoft, pla uh, sorry, not Microsoft, Minecraft platform to evaluate its ability to get even cleverer. So they're teaching AI to play Minecraft. Now, how is AI going to craft an obsidian sword? Well, it's actually not teaching AI to play Minecraft. Because it it's, already knows. Well, no, it's actually saying, you go and play Minecraft and let's see how good you are. So oh, some okay. AI models out there, I would say almost cheat because basically they feed the AI model all the data for a certain task and then say, go and do that task. And we sit back and we're amazed that it could do that task. Mm. And if you break that down very simply, it says, okay, if you multiply five by five, the answer is 25. And so the AI model sitting there and someone says, what's five times five? It's 25. Wow, how good was that? Well, yeah. it kind of had the answer already. Yeah. What they're using Minecraft for is to test AI models because Minecraft has got lots of irrelevant stuff in there and it's got problem solving. And so they're saying to different AI models, okay, you go and play this game and let's see how you go solving complex, multi-step problems yeah. 
while ignoring the irrelevant details and see how you go at that. And again, I, I, I must say it every episode. Well, ignoring irrelevant details, that's a, actually it's a tricky thing. It is. So we're humans, and I keep saying this, that we are cleverer than we realise. We work out how to play Minecraft. We know that certain things that happen are irrelevant. Certain things that happen, we need to work on those. We need to work out how we can solve this problem and go forth and do it. And we do it. Obviously, people play Minecraft. It's the most popular game in the world at the mm. moment. So people are doing it every single day. And sometimes they might be challenged by it. Sometimes they might have trouble working at something, but they do it. Whereas an AI tool that was just trained to, when you see A and B, then C will follow, mm. if that's all you know how to do, then you would have to be fed every scenario that you could possibly see in Minecraft to then be really clever. Mm. But this is all about learning how to solve complex problems. Yeah. And that's where it gets pretty scary but also fascinating that the AI models that can be tested with this way and so this is really a test bit if you like that can be shown to actually say you know I'm actually solving these problems I'm not just regurgitating information really quickly I'm solving these problems so the benchmark they use they give it 15 construction problems with varying levels of difficulty and in all total it's about 45 different tasks and then they see how they go, the AI model, how they go getting through that and also how fast they can do it all. Uh, so, again, I, I would almost guarantee that you'd give those problems to a 10-year-old kid, they'd solve them quicker than most of the AI models that are out there at the moment. But as these AI models get better, that's when it's going to get yeah. pretty fascinating. <laughs> so, but that's what we want. We want people solving – we want – not people, we want – tools solving some of our complex problems because that's something that we do well as humans. We dream up these solutions. We dream up using a locust to do bomb sniffing. <laughs> yeah. We dream up these scenarios. AI is good at regurgitation and, and certainly some analysis as well. But getting to the stage where we can really analyse some of these problems, that's, that's the real challenge there. Amazing stuff ahead. And with the battery indicator light flashing before us in a very anxious sort of fashion – we better get busy finishing up for the day. Nice work yet again, Matt. Congratulations on another cracking tech talk. Thank you. And I am going to go and watch Mr. Bates versus the Post Office now. I'm going to go and find it. I assume yeah. it's already streaming <laughs> in Australia somewhere, so I'm going to go and find that because I want to see the full development of that versus the, the dramatisation. Yeah, 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 that's yeah. right. Well, me, I'm off to go and learn how to play Minecraft and hopefully stay one ahead of a step ahead of AI. It's quite probably a futile enterprise, but at least I'll have something lighthearted to chat about with the overlords at the end of days. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson, streamed coast to coast and across the deep blue sea, courtesy of the modern-day marvel of the internet. I'm your host, James Eddy, and I'm delighted to present this tidy little podcast week after week. I hope you enjoy it just as much. Take care, and we'll see you next time. 